Hey Pios, welcome back to The Pod, a podcast created by the Pioneer Log to help you stay connected with the ideas, projects, humans, and events that make up Lewis and Clark College. I'm your host, Charlotte Powers. The Pod releases a new episode every other Friday, along with the Pioneer Log's printed issue. We have some juicy stories to share with y'all today. We will be talking with Editor-in-Chief Nick Nurley about LC's current budget crisis and listening to News Editor Venus Edlin interviewing LC alum Matt Worker, a Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist and founding staff member at Politico. We are also chatting with staff writer Nathan Oakley about the salary freezes LC faculty and staff are experiencing. Given the complexity of our main segments, this episode will not feature any voicers, but be sure to check out our new episode for the stories. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Our first guest is with Editor-in-Chief Nick Nurley, who will clarify LC's financial history and their most recent Form 990. Hey, Nick. Hi, Charlotte. Hey. Okay, <laughs> let's begin. So you wrote a robust article um, about Elsie's financial history uh, and what the most recent Form 990 uh, revealed. Can you explain to us just what a Form 990 is? Yeah, so I'll begin just by saying that this article overviews the financial history of Lewis and Clark between fiscal year 2010 fiscal year 2018. Lewis and Clark's fiscal years run from June 1st to May 31st. So uh, for example, the fiscal year 2018 Form 990 ran from June 1st, 2018 uh, through May 31st, 2019. A Form 990 is a document that the IRS requires tax-exempt organizations, um, including nonprofit colleges like Lewis and Clark, to file annually according to their fiscal years. It lists all sorts of information about the nonprofit. Um, Assets, liabilities, revenue, expenditures, salaries for in compensation for some individuals that are employed by the institution, where money goes around the world, um, by geographic area. This is relevant to Lewis and Clark because of overseas programs and investments. There's all sorts of information. It's a very long document. And so just to clarify for our listeners, this Form 990 was not stolen. It was not, you didn't have to go into the deep basement of the manor house to find this. This is all available on propublica.com. This information is available to the general public. So the class of 2019, you report, uh, otherwise known as Class Zilla, has been uh, one of the biggest classes for LC. It had 699 entering first years and students, which brought LC a revenue of $200 million in the fiscal year of 2018. That's a lot of money. What has happened since the class of 2019's departure? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's it's not clear entirely because this article ends with fiscal year 2018, um, which is around the time when the class of 2019 graduated in May of 2019. The Pioneer Log's done a lot of reporting in the past about the general state of Lewis and Clark's budget. That's going to answer um, recent questions about Elsie's finances better than this article will. That being said, Lewis and Clark 
planned for this class's departure. Um, the amount of revenue that this particular class brought to college was very significant. Mm -hmm. 699 entering first years in transfers in the class, not that many graduated, of course, um, but that is far higher than the typical graduating class at Lewis and Clark, especially in the last 10, 11 years. So when the class graduated, they knew that there was going to be a deficit. The fiscal year after Classzilla left, um, Lewis and Clark expected that they were going to run a roughly $4 million deficit. I'm not sure whether that was, uh, that actually happened or not. If it was more or less than 4 million, that was what they were expecting. And then of course the fiscal year, the one that we're in now, we have the coronavirus. <laughs> so it's been two difficult years financially, first with the departure of Classzilla and then COVID. Yes, the college has taken a hit a few times uh, financially. And knowing this, the college has long talked about changes that need to be made both in the academic realm and general student life. Can you reiterate some of these changes for us? Yeah, I'll start with the academic side of things. You can see it by the programs that the faculty are adopting. You know, recently there was a health studies minor that was added. There was an entrepreneurship leadership minor that was added. Very recently there was a data science minor that was approved um, by the faculty. Obviously, these all relate to STEM, and that's a contested topic on campus about whether Lewis and Clark should be implementing programs that are more STEM-oriented or whether they should stick to the traditional, quote-unquote, liberal arts curriculum of humanities and social sciences. Right. The belief and the evidence shows that if Lewis and Clark brings in more STEM programs, it's going to bring more students. Mm. Um, so that's the reasoning behind that. And of course, when there are more students, there's more revenue. On the residential side of things, there's a plan to remodel Templeton. The initial phase of that was recently approved by the Board of Trustees. Um, but in the master plan, there's also um, an effort to either replace or remodel existing dorms. If Lewis and Clark successfully retains the amount of students that it wants to retain, they're probably going to need more dorms. They just need more space to house students. Right. So that can, of course, come in the form of new dorms or remodeling and expanding existing dorms. Um, at the February Board of Trustees meeting that recently happened, the trustees agreed that it would probably be in the financial interest of the college to remodel uh, existing dorms, particularly those across from Templeton, so the SOA dorms. Um, rather than tearing those out and building new dorms, which is what the master plan has laid out. So you have on one end academics trying to create academics that attract students and creating a residential life for the student body that makes them want to stay. I, I think those changes are excellent changes to consider and hopefully make in the long run. Um, I am biased. I lived in Stewart for the first two years of my college career, and boy, would an update be nice. <laughs> so yeah, let's hope those, those plans come to fruition. Let's talk about our endowment. Our college currently has an endowment of $250 million. The endowment is what you call in your article, quote, a pool of assets invested by the college, end quote, uh, to promote academics, research, financial aid, et cetera. 
the endowment grows through either donations or incomes from previous investments. How has the endowment changed in recent years? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's important to note that the endowment is very different from operating revenue mm. that goes in part collects. Um, this conversation that we just had about um, trying to get more students to come to Lewis and Clark and keeping them at Lewis and Clark so that there's more revenue, that has nothing to do with the endowment. The endowment is a completely different pool of money. So that being said, I would say that the endowment over the past few years has been very strong. And I think that President Vivell's welcome to the campus is a large part of that. Um, when Vivell was hired to be Lewis and Clark's next president in 2017, he was hailed as um, really a master of donations. He really increased Portland State University's uh, donations. I think he tripled them while he was president there. And that's what he was hired to do. You know, an essential responsibility of a college president is bringing in money. And he's very good at that. His first full year on the job, so the 2017-18 was a partial year, and the 2018-19 academic year was his first full year on the job. Yeah. That year, he raised more money and collected donations um, for the endowment than the previous three years combined. And that trend, as far as I know, has been pretty consistent. Of course, the other thing that's happening right now is the big capital campaign, hopes of getting $155 million um, into the college by 2024. That is going swimmingly. Wow. Um, I think Lewis and Clark recently, recently surpassed, or it's about to surpass, uh, $85 million of that $155 million, and there are still three years left on the campaign. Wow. So um, I would say that the endowment is doing well, and the president is um, very much the cause of that. Hats off to them. <laughs> Yay, that's good. That's good to hear. That makes me hopeful, and I'm sure many listeners hopeful as well. Moving from endowment, let's talk about tuition. Between yeah. 2010 and 2018, tuition and fees have increased from $111.1 million to $142.5 million. Uh, this is a whopping increase. This is a 38.1% increase. However, you report that despite this increase, the college's revenue has only increased by 28%. Why is that? The reason for that is because it's becoming more and more expensive to operate a college. Benefits and compensation to employees is very expensive. Another big um, expense for the college is uh, just fees related to keeping things running, making sure that this is an academic institution. Mm. You know, this includes stuff like information technology, just office expenses, um, travel for the college, smaller things like insurance, you know, lawyers, accounting, right, um, right. hiring people to manage the investments within the endowment. Um, these are just a few examples, but all of those prices are increasing. And at the same time, Lucas and Clark has seen a decrease in the number of students on campus, yeah. which is decreasing revenue, of course. Um, yeah, Lewis and Clark is not the only college facing this problem. Like liberal arts colleges in general are having a very difficult time uh, keeping things moving because it's so expensive. 
to yeah. keep an institution of this size um, alive. Let's talk about other ways the colleges spend money. Uh, let's talk about uh, the most recent 990 form uh, revealed that the college is still was still paying two former administrators that left the college uh, years prior. Uh, this is Vice President for Institutional Advancement Gregory Volk, who left in the summer of 2012, and former President Barry Glasner, who resigned in January of 2017. Nick, please tell me why the college is still paying two administrators that no longer work at Lewis and Clark. In short, um, I can't answer that concretely. The administrators at the college that I spoke to, as well as um, the chair of the board of trustees, Stephanie Fowler, declined to comment. Um, Stephanie Fowler did say that she was happy that these financial liabilities um, are now in the past, which to me suggests that they're no longer being compensated. I spoke to a lot of people in college leadership that opted to speak on background and didn't want their names attributed, um, saying that neither of those individuals left their posts willingly and that it was likely a contractual obligation that resulted in them being compensated large sums of money the years after they left Lewis and Clark. That being said, the Volk and Glasner situations are different in that Barry Glasner was also a tenured professor in addition to his time as president. And that's not unusual. Most college presidents that are also academics earn a tenured position um, when they come on as president. Mm -hmm. So when Glasner resigned, resigned the presidency, but did not resign his post as a tenured professor. That is the explanation that was given for why he was compensated. However, he had no academic relationship with the college after that point. He did not teach classes. He did not attend faculty or department meetings. He did not have any presence on campus. I don't even know if he lived in Portland. He continued to be compensated as a professor of sociology. The Volk situation, I don't know. Um, probably something in the contract. Fascinating. Well, Nick, with your journalism skills, I would not be surprised if that eventually comes to light. So keep keep on the lookout for that. Um, and my last question for you, how are administrators at LC compensated and treated differently from faculty? And how does LC compensate administrators uh, differently compared to peer institutions? It varies on the individual and it varies on the position. Just a rough glance at fiscal year 2018, 990s shows that Lewis and Clark pays its president a little bit more than average. Uh, it paid its vice president for institutional advancement a little bit less than average. The dean of students um, earned a little bit more than some institutions, a little bit less than some institutions. Um, it seems like the trend generally is that Lewis and Clark is compensating at market level. I don't feel comfortable saying that concretely, but based on the fiscal year 2018 data, it seems like there's not some wild discrepancy with the way that Lewis and Clark compensates its administrators and the way that uh, other peer institutions compensate theirs. That being said, they, they earn a lot of money, certainly more than the typical faculty member. So for example, um, CAS faculty during the 2019-20 academic year earned on average far less than $100,000. The, the median assistant professor earned a salary of about $70,000. The median associate professor, um, $81,000. The median full professor, 
uh, about 102,000. Um, and these are all tenure track positions. So, the, you know, the adjunct faculty um, and the instructors are probably making a lot less than that or considerably less. I did not have the data for those folks. Um, but just those medians are substantially less than what the typical administrator is making. That, yeah, that is really good. To, I mean, I think we've all kind of known the considerable pay gap between faculty and administrators, but now seeing it at a numerical value, um, I think definitely sheds light uh, on an issue that hopefully Lewis and Clark will address in the near future. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that there is far more information that Nick has reported on in this subject. So if you would like some clarification or just want more information, please head to pyolog.com uh, and check out Nick's article there. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Our second segment features news editor Venus Edlin and their discussion with Matt Worker, an LC alum who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist at Politico. Let's have a listen. The first thing I want to start off by asking is how you first got interested in drawing and cartooning and how you developed that skill over the years. You know, I was just one of those kids that always liked to draw. Um, when I was young, my mother, who had been a school teacher, was always super generous about having drawing materials around. So, I mean, like at a very early age, I kind of got really fascinated by how you create images with your hands. So with finger painting, and there was a lovely neighbor down the street who was an artist, and I was friends with her kids, and she always had stuff out. So... It started really, really early. And then in, in elementary school, I realized that you can impress the other kids by being able to draw stuff. So this is, we're talking the 1960s. I, I got really proficient at drawing P.T. boats. So John F. Kennedy had become president and the P.T. boat was a big part of his narrative, his story. And uh, they're kind of cool boats. So like starting first or second grade, I could draw pretty cool P.T. boats and drew on mimeographs. You have no idea what that is, but it's a, it was an early form of making copies in schools. And, uh, and then my high school paper, I worked on that. There was sort of a, a turning point, I think, came for me in high school in that I, uh, I got to meet a very uh, famous and successful political cartoonist who was the uh, cartoonist at the L.A. Times. Paul Conrad was his name. He won, I think, three Pulitzer Prizes. And uh, through my mother's connection in the League of Women Voters, uh, my mom knew, had met his wife. And so she asked Kay, she said, I got this kid who really draws lots of cartoons. And uh, would Paul take a look? And so at an early age, he became a sort of a mentor of mine. And not just encouraged me in terms of the work, but he also... Uh, it's a fairly unique career path, and it was it was the it was the role model that he presented that that made the difference. Where it's like, oh, you can actually do this, and if you do this, you get like a cool office in the LA Times office, and you get to sit around and draw pictures, and people seem to care. And uh, Conrad was famous because he was the only cartoonist 
to make Nixon's enemies list. That was also impressive to a high school kid. So I guess then it was kind of a natural progression to, in college, become um, in this role of editorial, or chief editorial cartoonist. Had that position existed before? You know, it, it varied a little bit. So we're talking the mid-70s. So I showed up at Lewis and Clark in 1975. Cartooning was going through some kind of change. And I was like this kind of traditionalist throwback who wanted to do, you know, old-fashioned political cartoons, single frame, talking about whatever the political issues were at the moment. And, you know, mid-70s, it was the counterculture was going on and the, the alternative press was big, and so there were other cartoonists that wanted to do stuff in the Pioneer Log that were much more edgy and more like uh, what Art Crumb was doing. And so there was some experimentation going on, and, and within that cohort, I was by far the traditionalist, I think. What was it kind of like to see and go through this huge transformation in the industry? required constant evolution and retraining and all that stuff. So uh, I actually got my first real job out of college thanks to somebody I met on the Pioneer Log, um, Rick Cooper, who was a maybe a year, maybe two years. I think Rick was maybe two years ahead of me. Um, and he had been the editor at the Pioneer Log. And then he went off and got a job working for an animation studio in Portland, the claymation studio that Will Minton started. So when I was still at Lewis and Clark, Thanks to Rick, I got a job doing storyboards and some other stuff with this animation studio. And then when I graduated, I, uh, I, I went and got a full-time job working as an animator. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that having hybrid skill sets was really helpful in adapting to sort of the changing media landscape. In the 80s, pretty much everything was still just on newsprint. This is pre-internet, right? Along come personal computers in the late 80s and this thing called Photoshop and digital stuff where it's like, oh, God, what's a scanner? And somebody from a thing called a blog wants to use a cartoon. What the hell is that? And, uh, you know, email pops up and fax machines. And so technology kept sort of like pushing you along. And you just you had to just embrace every little new thing. I worked in animation and I worked with muralists and I did commercial illustration. I did. I wore a lot of different artistic hats to make a living through a good part of my life. And then at age 50, I got hired by Politico. And uh, it was my first regular staff job for something that would resemble a newspaper. I'd done lots of freelance work for the, the LA Times and the Oregonian and the Washington Post, but strictly as a freelancer. And then suddenly at age 50, I'm working for this outfit that, uh, this is in 2006 when we first started up, was one of the early um, successes of online news. And uh, the thing that Politico realized was that the eyeballs were migrating from newsprint to computers. And it's funny how we t this stuff happens so fast. Well, maybe not to you. 14 years to me seems like it, it goes by really, really fast. But, you know, this idea that I think the iPhone is maybe 14 or 15 years old. The idea that you would have this device in your pocket that was as powerful as a computer and pretty soon, instead of picking up magazines and newspapers, you would read stuff on this little device in your pocket. And Politico was a very early uh, adopter of like, you know what, the, the audience is going to be on mobile. Um, and at the same time that we started, then Twitter and Facebook were just starting. And this idea that social media would be a gateway for content was also something that they were into. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I I found it kind of interesting because I had seen a little anecdote about you from a profile from your senior year of college talking about how you wanted to go into politics rather than cartooning, but I ended up coming back to that now. What was that kind of process and development like? I imagine what I was thinking was that uh, I was an IA major, and, uh, and you know, IA, you'd like to sit around and stroke your beard and think grandiose thoughts and all that sort of stuff and think important things to be very, very serious getting through my, my IA degree. I imagine that, yeah, maybe not politics, but I could go work for the State Department or something and do something directly IA-related. And then by the time I graduated, I didn't want to work for the State Department. Part of that was sort of the state of U.S. government policy at that point in the mid-'70s, just coming off of Vietnam and heading into the wars in Central America. I didn't really want to be part of that. And and I was offered a job working in the animation field. So I took that, and then I started doing cartoons for Willamette Week. Those were That was my first sort of regular slot as a political cartoonist. And I just loved it. And it's, you know, it's a great, it's a wonderful format where you get to share your political opinion. And in most cases, you're given a lot of editorial freedom, which I still enjoy to this day. On that same note, what does the inspiration process look like for you? How do you get your ideas and kind of craft them into a cartoon? Um, I am a news junkie, and so I spend a lot of time marinating in the news. Um, I, you know, I, I read several papers. Politico keeps me uh, quite occupied because it produces a lot of content. I get ideas all the time. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for 40 plus years now. And so I have sort of muscle in my brain that's trained to think in terms of punchlines and metaphors and stuff like that. And um, I actually, a lot of the time, will um, dream up my cartoons. I uh, I wake up in the morning um, with an idea and it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. And um, my subconscious works away for me at night, too. So. It's one of those things where if you keep doing it and you keep doing it, you keep doing it, it, it becomes a, a sort of a, an automatic brain function that goes on in the background, even if you don't know what's going on. And kind of bouncing off of that, what does your day-to-day look like? I know it's awfully different now during the pandemic, but, mm-hmm. you know, what is your sort of workload? What are you typically doing? How many cartoons are you putting out? That sort of deal. My normal work day is I work five days a week. I, I usually put in at least 40 hours a week on it. Um, I now do three cartoons, political cartoons a week. But Politico, for some strange reason, has been trying to turn me into a video journalist, too. <laughs> I'm now working with the video team. See, I have to keep adapting. And we do. We produce videos every week. We do a thing at the end of the week called Weekend Wrap where we gather political satire from online and the late night TV shows and cartoons, and we share that. So I produce and edit that thing. I also produce a a roundup of cartoons from sort of across the political spectrum that appears in Politico on Friday. So beginning of the week, to answer your question, beginning of the week is all about coming up with three decent cartoon ideas, which is not, I mean, now that Donald Trump is gone, it's a little harder than it used to be. so you sort of dig around and try to educate yourself so you don't say something that's uh, stupid or shallow or I work with paint and ink and um, I work with a fairly dense, complicated drawing style that, that it takes me it takes me four or five hours to, to really render a cartoon. 
You briefly mentioned Trump serving as an easy inspiration for a lot of cartoons, humor-related political content. How do you think Trump has kind of changed that landscape of political comedy? And where do you think it's going now that Trump's no longer in office? I think that, you know, like a lot of things that Trump's affected, the basic thing was that he sort of coarsened the conversation There's one thing that I don't like about political satire in 2021 and a lot of cartoon. It feels to me like the country has never been so tribal. And, you know, it's red state versus blue state. It's Republican versus Democrat. It's really sort of becoming like Iraq and the Sunnis and the Shiites or something. And then people are engaged in this kind of political fight that's no longer a conversation. And both sides just want to demonize the other side. And shut down the uh, the conversation with some you know sharp stick in the eye kind of insult. I don't think that's particularly helpful or good for the country right now. And I think Trump massively fed that kind of negative tribal warfare in the country that puts us in a place now post Trump where uh, it's harder to get back to sort of gentler humor. You know, we have to stop calling each other. Um, uh, communists and fascists and stuff and realize that there are good people from red states who are conservative that actually have legitimate concerns and vice versa. So maybe this is my age, you know, we all get more conservative and mellow with our age or something, but I I would love to figure out a way to sort of bring down the temperature a little bit, make it so that it's more of a conversation and, and less of a fight. It sounds like you don't think that the role of how humor should be used in these issues is being used properly. Or I guess what is the role that humor should play in politics and these really serious big issues that we're dealing with? I think that humor can be a a bridge. I think that it can open up people's eyes who maybe don't necessarily agree with something, but a really good cartoon can jump through somebody's eyeball and make them laugh and they suddenly realize that they got a point that's being made by somebody that they generally disagree with or something. I mean, I think that humor can be constructive. I think that there's a lot of sort of perverse incentives these days, especially in the online world and social media world, to be nasty and seek out conflict and that insult and conflict attract eyeballs and eyeballs attract followers and then you get a bigger following. And if you're doing something that's sort of gently witty, it doesn't succeed in the Twitterverse. And and that's really unfortunate. And I think it's just, it's been really sad. I mean, I don't know where that comes from, but um, it's definitely the culture of that world. Some of it has to do with the fact that we're sitting in our little lockdown rooms and, it, you, you know, you say stuff on Twitter that you would never say to somebody sitting at a bar or at the Thanksgiving table or something like that. But given anonymity and given distance, people feel free to vent and say all sorts of horrible things, and which I think is uh, is really hurting the country. It seems that, you know, being a cartoonist yourself, you had also kind of expressed a special interest in protecting and representing cartoonists. It's in some of your work, and you were in some various organizations that aimed to do so. How did mm-hmm. that, why why has that been so important to you? Paying it forward. Uh, cartooning has been very, very good to me, and um, just a way of me sort of paying it back. And um, I got involved. The thing that you're probably talking about more than anything is the Cartoonist Rights Network International. And um, it's a nonprofit that's based here in Washington. And I've been active with them for 20 years. 
In fact, I'm now the president of the board for them. And uh, we're basically a, 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 a rough, tough little nonprofit that helps cartoonists who get in trouble like cartoonists do around the world. And um, uh, as we like to say, cartoonists are sort of out there on the front line of free speech. And uh, that's not so hazardous if you work in a country like the United States, but if you're working in a place like Iran or Equatorial Guinea or places like that, you can get in big trouble and find yourself in jail. And it's uh, important at those times to have friends in other places. So we, we put pressures on governments to not hurt cartoonists who they've thrown in jail um, and release them. And um, in some cases, we help get uh, cartoonists out of the country where they're clearly there's no hope of them being able to go back to work and uh, so we've helped cartoonists from Iran and uh, right now we're we're helping a guy in Bangladesh who just spent six months in jail for cartoons that he was doing and uh, it's a big battle and cartoonists for some reason uh, seem to be the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to this sort of stuff I mean you, you can think of Charlie Hebdo and and um, stuff like that provocative cartoons provoke people and if they provoke the wrong people it becomes a pretty dangerous business yeah you kind of mentioned this idea of cartoonists being the canary in the coal mine why do you think that is do you think that's a result of it being a visual medium it's kind of a little bit more visceral what are your thoughts on that i think you nailed it that's exactly it it's, it's a visceral it's a visceral mm -hmm. medium and it's it's kind of precognitive in some ways. People take it into their eyeballs and it sort of skips. And the, the visual impact, I think, hits people more emotionally. And then and then in the current era that we're living in, in the digital age, uh, cartoons leap across borders and cultural barriers in a way that written language can't. So, for instance, the Danish cartoon controversy and the and the Charlie Hebdo stuff. You know, you can take a cartoon that's drawn in Paris for sophisticated Parisians and you can hold it up in a madrasa in Pakistan and it's going to have a really different effect. And uh, and those are sort of unforeseen consequences of, uh, of working in the new global media village. Have you yourself had any any of your work that has been more provocative, that has inspired any sort of backlash? Do you have any poignant moments of that sort of thing? I have nothing, nothing like the the, mm -hmm. the Charlie cartoonist or anything like that. But I I did step in it about I think it was maybe four years ago that there was the hurricane went into Houston. I did a cartoon that was a picture of a Texas secessionist cowboy uh, and the secessionist headquarters is like underwater and it's up the water. The floodwaters are up to the roof. And this guy, he's got one of those don't tread on me shirts and the cowboy hat is being hauled up to a, uh, a Coast Guard helicopter. And he's saying, thank God almighty, angel sent from heaven. And the helicopter pilot is saying, no, actually, the, we're the Coast Guard and sent by the federal government. It's a kind of a point that's made often uh, um, during national emergencies where the federal government comes and bails out people who hate the federal government. For some reason, this struck a nerve in Texas. It was a little too soon, I think. The floodwaters had just started to recede. And, uh, and so the right-wing media went crazy about it and decided that I was a horrible human being and um, and then the Twitterverse picked it up, and then I started getting lots of death threats from people in Texas who thought I was insulting all Texans. And what kind of horrible human being makes fun of people in a natural disaster like that? And I was trying to point out that, you know, it's like it's like I did cartoons making fun of the Nazis and racists in Charlottesville, 
I wasn't, those were directed at them, not at everybody in Virginia. And this was directed at the irony of the secessionists in Texas, but by no means, I didn't mean disrespect all Texans. And this thing just sort of spirals out of control and social media goes crazy. And it happens to cartoonists all the time because we're an easy target and people get sort of easily offended, like we were saying. But before long, I, they, they were talking about the cartoon on Fox News and and I believe it was Carl Rover or Mike Huckabee, one of them had this great line about people like worker, they're just typical Eastern elitists, liberals who sit there in their penthouses in New York and look down at the people in Texas and just scoff at them. And uh, so again, it was just, I played right into all of this tribal politics. And uh, fortunately my editors at Politico are really smart strong people and they just sort of said keep your head down it'll go away and it took a couple of weeks and the death threats continued for quite a while and from time to time i'll post a cartoon and some texan will pop up and go aren't you that asshole that did that nasty cartoon <laughs> hurricane harvey you know it's like yeah yeah i'm that guy in my penthouse in new york <laughs> right right i want to be respectful of your time but i have one more question for you mm -hmm. What was it like to receive a Pulitzer Prize? Like, that's the dream for, you know, anyone working in the field. It's such a cliche thing to say, but it was completely surreal. Um, it was, uh, you know, never dreamed it would happen to me. And um, when it did, it was sort of a strange out-of-body experience. And uh, going up to New York, you, you, you go to a, it's a luncheon where they hand them out at Columbia University. And you're there in this big, giant library under a big dome at Columbia surrounded by all these very smart people and um, you know uh, people talk about imposter syndrome and uh, oh boy you know you're sitting there kind of going what am I doing here do they have any idea so it was it was a huge huge honor and um, it, and uh, I owe it to people like Bob Mandel and Paul Conrad and a lot of people who helped me along the way well, thank you so much for putting the time to meet with me. I very much so appreciate it. It's very nice of you to interview me and think that there's something worthwhile here to talk about. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Stay away from that virus, okay? Our next interview is with staff writer Nathan Oakley, disclosing the pay cuts being made at LC. Hey, Nathan. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlotte. Hey, thanks for coming back on. Okay, so you and fellow staff writer Cassidy Harris wrote this really extensive article about the pay cuts that are being made at LC. As many students know, faculty and staff salaries have become a concern in recent years due to budget issues. Um, in an email recently sent by Professor of History Elliot Young, faculty were asked if they would prefer cuts to their salaries or cuts to their retirement benefits. Um, I imagine faculty and staff are pretty upset by this. Um, what steps, if any, do faculty wish to take or hope to see in the future? Yeah, so basically we, we reached out to a lot of different faculty members and the consensus we got is that they're all very concerned, but none of them are that surprised. Um, we talked to Cliff Becker, a professor in the econ department, 
and, and one of the things he told us is that over the past decade or so, there's kind of been a mutual understanding among faculty that cuts may be coming um, with the budget crisis um, and salary freezes like the one faculty are experiencing right now have been more and more frequent. So, you know, a cut has always kind of been the elephant in the room. Right now, the faculty aren't having their salaries or benefits cut um, at all. They're just in a freeze. But the sort of looming threat that that may happen is quite demoralizing on them. Yeah, it's a tough situation right now. It certainly is, as you put it, the elephant in the room. Another professor that you spoke with, professor of sociology, Bruce Podobnik, voiced his concerns about the college attracting new staff and faculty, as well as keeping the current ones we do have. Could you elaborate on these concerns? Yeah, so in Bruce's email, he mentioned that um, it has long been recognized that entry-level faculty, even some associate and professor-level faculty members at Lewis and Clark are usually compensated lower than comparable institutions. And this is actually something that uh, deviated from what um, the dean of the college, Bruce Suttmeyer, told us. What Bruce Suttmeyer told us was that uh, if Lewis and Clark doesn't pay faculty and incoming faculty a competitive wage, then they're not going to get any new faculty members to come to Lewis and Clark. Mm. But that made us bring up the former International Affairs Department chair, Heather Smith-Kanoy, who left in 2019. And her departure was in part because she wasn't being paid competitively enough for her position relative to other institutions. And this is something she brought up in a biolog article in 2019. And so that's definitely a concern that's been raised many times to the board of trustees and to the dean of the college. And it's something that they're working actively to reconcile as we speak. No, I remember when Professor Smith-Kanoy left and that was a bold move. And I remember both students and faculty were talking about it and how it truly brought to life a conversation that was already pretty prevalent on campus, but became ever more so in her departure. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I mean, another example to just throw it out there is the former Arabic professor, Adelaide Byram, who took on such a great deal of responsibility in that department and was the only professor in the Arabic department for years. She wasn't able to receive a raise, and so she just had to leave because she couldn't afford the cost of living in Portland any longer on her current compensation. Um, and that's something that we're, I think we're going to see happen more often as these freezes become more frequent. Along with the email you mentioned, uh, faculty were notified sometime this year that their salaries will be freezed for this academic year. You, you spoke to this briefly. What is the cause of this effect? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, the college was doing pretty good in terms of getting the budget back on track. But then when the pandemic hit, there was kind of no choice but to take a freeze. And um, one thing I do want to note is that administrators kind of started that trend off with the freeze. I believe they took a 20% furlough over the summer. Mm -hmm. And um, now faculty are doing the same. It's just to make sure that the budget is not getting at too much of a deficit during COVID. That makes sense. Yeah times have been really difficult during the pandemic and hopefully um, with the vaccines coming out um, we'll start to see a bit of relief there. Along with Professor Young and Professor Badovnik, economics professor Cliff Becker, who also serves on the Budget Advisory Committee, says that the college's current budget threatens the quote teacher-scholar model, end quote. What does he mean by this? 
Yeah, so when he brings up the teacher-scholar model, what he's talking about is the kind of liberal arts education pursued by Lewis and Clark, where you have students in small class sizes, and they're really bonding with teachers who care a lot about research. Um, and then students are given the chance to do that research with their professors in small groups. Um, and he thinks that cutting compensation jeopardizes that mission that the college holds so dearly. And if that mission is jeopardized, then the entire college is facing an existential threat. And so really a freeze is kind of the first nail in the coffin, so to speak, of the liberal arts model Lewis and Clark is trying to pursue. And so faculty are very wary of anything being pursued past a freeze because of the danger it poses to that mission that the school has held for so long. Right, yes, as you mentioned, teacher-scholar model is integral to a, a unique liberal arts education that attracts both professors and students to the campus. My last question for you, Nathan, even though the college's budget crisis is a genuine concern, Becker and Young are confident that LC's budget will recover. Uh, what are some reasons why they feel this way? Yeah, so one of the things uh, Mr. Young told us is that um, President Beevil has actually done a really good job at raising capital. He's already raised over $80 million, and the Board of Trustees is donating very generously right now with commitments to diversity and equity. Um, and so that kind of competent, cohesive leadership team that the college has right now from a financial standpoint is really making it so Lewis and Clark faces these serious structural challenges in a much more efficient way as opposed to some of our other competing institutions. I mean, Concordia comes to mind and they're now defunct. Um, so faculty members are really confident that Lewis and Clark will survive and prosper by coming together under this really united leadership team and executive council. And that um, even with COVID, we're gonna be able to dig ourselves out of this hole we're in a little better than some of the other institutions in the area. I agree, and I hope that this energy and prosperity that Becker, Young, and Evel are felt by other students and faculty and other members of the LC community as well. That was Nathan Oakley, fellow staff writer for the Pioneer Log. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Charlotte. today's show was brought to you by Ketza and Micaiah Beats. A special thanks to Nick Nurley, Venus Edlin, Matt Worker, and Nathan Oakley for joining us today. Since the Piopod cannot feature all the stories covered in each issue, be sure to pick up a print copy on campus or head to piolog.com for more information. If you have any stories you think should be aired on this show, don't hesitate to email me at thepiopod at lclark.edu. If you have any suggestions as to how this show can improve, you can also contact me using the email above. That's all for this episode, but tune in on Friday, April 9th, to hear the latest news happening at Lewis and Clark College. See you next time on The Piopod. Pod.